his book, All the Places to Go, How Will You Know? It's not Dr. Seuss, but it's author and pastor John Ortberg. Ask a poignant and probing question. If, and I'm going to ask you this this morning. If you had to summarize your life in six words, what would they be? Six words. He then continues, several years ago, an online magazine asked that question. It was inspired by a possibly legendary challenge posed to Ernest Hemingway to write a six-word story that resulted in the classic for sale, baby shoes never worn. So you get the picture. The magazine was flooded with so many responses that the site almost crashed. And the responses were eventually turned into a book. And the title of the book was not quite what I was planning. And it's filled with six-word memoirs by writers, famous and obscure. And since then, a number of different books have been spawned of the same sort. The memoirs range from funny to ironic to inspiring to heartbreaking. I'll give you some examples. Someone wrote these six words. One tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. Savior complex makes for many disappointments. Cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. This one was not written by a wise old grandmother, but by a nine-year-old boy with thyroid cancer. The psychic said, I'd be richer. Actually, this author might be richer if she stopped blowing money on psychics. Tombstone won't say, had health insurance. Here's one, not a good Christian, but trying. And finally, thought I would have more impact. That was a powerful one. The challenge of the six-word limitation is its demand to focus us on what matters most, to capture briefly something of significance. It's striking to think about what the characteristics, uh, what the characters of Scripture might have written for their six-word memoirs. Ortberg says, I think they would revolve around the intersection of the story of that person's life with God's story. They would all be inspired by a divine opportunity that God had set before them and the response, the yes or no that shaped their lives. So for example, he poses that Abraham might have written these six words, left Ur, had baby, still laughing. (laughs) Or Jonah, no, storm, overboard, whale, regurgitated, yes. (laughs) Moses might have written burning bush, stone tablets, Charlton Heston. Adam, eyes opened, but can't find home. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, king was hot, furnace was not. (laughs) Noah, hated the rain, loved the rainbow. Esau, at least the stew was good. This is an interesting one. Esther, eye candy, Mordecai handy, Israel dandy. Mary, Jesus' mother, may have written manger, pain, joy, cross, pain, joy. Prodigal son, bad, sad, dad glad, brother mad. (laughs) Zacchaeus, climb sycamore tree, short, poorer, happier. The woman caught in adultery, picked up man, put down stones. Good Samaritan, I came, I saw, I stopped. Paul, Damascus, blind, suffer, right, change world. See, not quite what I was planning is the six-word memoir any of them could have written. In none of these cases would these characters have been able to predict what their, where their lives would have taken them. They were interrupted so to speak. 
They were offered an opportunity or threatened by danger or both. This is how life works, the author says. We are neither the authors nor the pawns of our life stories, but rather partners somehow with fate or destiny or circumstance or providence. And the writers of Scripture insist that at least sometimes in at least some lives, in any lives where the person is willing, that unseen partner can be God. Now, there is probably no more poignant and practical section of the book of James that addresses the issues of how we live our life, the plans we make, and the course it will eventually take than the one which we are going to encounter this morning. It addresses head-on and highlights the reality of the oft-repeated tongue-in-cheek witticism, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Only James isn't joking, and God is not laughing. Look at James chapter 4 in your Bibles. And we're going to look at verses 13 to 17, and there's a lot packed in here. So track with me. My speech may speed up as it gets closer to the time. Verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Here's my attempt at a six-word summary of this text. This is James' big idea in six words. Plans without God are foolish endeavors. Plans without God are foolish endeavors. Indeed, they are useless endeavors. And to our chagrin, you and I tend to do it all the time. Not necessarily by purposeful intention, mind you, but by practical omission. And that, says James, is certifiably wrong. James is addressing believers here in this text still, but it seems that he's highlighting a very select group, traveling merchants, which, by the way, were very common in James's time. In our day, we might picture a typical businessman or businesswoman, entrepreneurs. Indeed, with the rise of the organized church resembling more of a high-powered business than a generic community, many contemporary pastors and Christian leaders can fit into this category. In fact, now that you mention it, in light of our current day-to-day commuting, global travel, and foreign mission activity, almost any one of us can find ourselves on the other side of James's pointed finger. James says, come now. Come now. He says it quite brusquely. In other words, he's saying, see here, listen up. You who say, well, who's that? Well, I think it could be you and me. Quite frankly, I think it's, it's Christians. And whether it's in James' day or our day, it makes no difference. The implication here is that of an attitude not in keeping with a Christian outlook. He's warning us of the foolishness of living a life of practical atheism, if you want a term. Practical atheism. What's the warning that James gives? Well, actually, there are five warnings in this text, five red flags that warn us of imposing danger. The first one is this. Acknowledge your tendency towards self-confident ability. We need to acknowledge our tendency toward a self-confident ability. This is verses 13 and 14. Read them again. Come now you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. I like the way the NIV puts it actually. 
Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And Eugene Peterson's The Message really hits it. And now I have a word for you who brashly announced today at at the latest tomorrow, we're off to such and such a city for a year. We're going to start a business and make a lot of money. You don't know a thing about tomorrow. You see, it's not what's said here, but what is not said that's instructive. God is not mentioned at all. He's conveniently left out of the equation. This is life according to Google Calendar. This is life lived solely by your smartphone or your iPad or your, if you're old school, your Franklin Covey daytimer. This is not life by the will of God, but by the plans of man. That's what James is getting at. Here is the self-made man that he's talking about here. He's got a five-year plan and he can show you every move, calculated, scheduled, and outlined to a T, but there's no mention of God anywhere in it and seemingly no place for God. I think it may be more than just an oversight that James is getting at. You've seen these guys and these gals in the airport, haven't you? In their airport terminals and driving down the turnpike, phone to their ears, Head tilted down, sweat on their brows, wrinkles in their foreheads, and a tinge of impatience in their voice. Wow, don't interrupt their plans. Heaven forbid a flight gets delayed or canceled or a tire goes flat. Never mind if you catch a virus or the internet happens to go down. I know, I feel your pain. But here's James's point. He's not railing against planning out your day, okay? Let's get that straight right from the get-go. He's not even against planning into the future. You know, I, I heard that, that Wesley, the great Wesley, used to plan his, his day in 20-minute increments. 20-minute increments, he would plan it all out so that he would make sure that not one-third of his day was not being lived for the glory of God. But God was in that planning. What we're looking at here is someone that plans without God in it. So he's not railing against planning out your day, not even into the future. What he's warning against is leaving God out of it. No God contingencies here. Look at what he says in verse 13 again. Today or tomorrow, we will go there. Such and such a city. The implication here is a particular city. As a matter of fact, you could point it out on the map. It's like he's saying, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to Boston, or we're going to go to New York, or we're going to go to San Francisco. What are we going to do? We will do a year there. That's literally what it says. We will do a year there. We will do business there, and we will make money there. You see, they've got it all figured out. The time, the place, the duration, the agenda, the outcome. In other words, the planning here is pointed, it's particular, and it's prayerless. That's the implication. There's no mention of God in these plans at all. It is strictly of human origin. Now, don't misread James. He's not rebuking the planning or the profit-making. He's admonishing them for a worldly, self-contained self-confidence that excludes God from the agenda. Planning which ignores the sovereignty of God is presumptuous. Here are the rules, says Chuck Swindoll, of playing God according to James 4.13. Set your own schedule, select your own path, place your own limits, arrange your own activities, and predict your own outcome. If you do all those things, you're playing God. Is that you? Because when we do this without recognizing or respecting that God could interrupt us at any point in time, we do it to our shame and to our peril. It's presumptuous. Why? As James says in verse 14, you do not know what your life will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
Proverbs 27, verse 1 says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. You know, Jesus once talked about the fact that in the last days, right before the coming of the Son of Man, guess what people are going to be going about doing? In Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke 17, he says, many people will be going about their business of eating and drinking and buying and selling and marrying and planting, etc., etc., etc. And just like in the days of Noah and Lot, when they were overtaken and destroyed, so will these people be living their lives. They were living as if God does not exist. He wasn't faulting them for going about their normal duties of everyday life, but for going about their human plans, paying no attention to God whatsoever. The classic example of this is found in a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. Turn there, if you would. Luke chapter 12. Just want to look at it really quickly. Luke 12. I call it the parable of a plan interrupted. You know the story, right? The businessman. In verse 13, uh, 16, Jesus told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself. Now, there's your first clue right there. He was reasoning where? Not with God, to himself. Saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones. I can store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to what? My soul. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said, don't you hate it when a verse starts like that? But God said, what did God say? You fool, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? You fool, God said to the man. You know what a fool is one, according to the scriptures, who says in his heart, there is no God. But you know what that looks like? It's one who lives as if there was no God. This businessman planned without a God contingency. Practical atheism. He reasoned to himself, not with God. He didn't pray to God. He said to his soul, but God said to him, and there it is, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And you know where that originated? That was a national Scottish poet by the name of Robbie Burns. This is how it really goes. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glee. It means often go awry. Listen, friends, there's your plans, and then there's God. Make sure God's in your plans. Because if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. A plan without God is a foolish endeavor. So James throws up that first warning, that red flag, and here's the second one. He says, you better admit to the blind spot of your self-deceived futility. Verse 14, the second part of the verse here in James chapter 4. What is your life? The NIV says. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And NASB says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I think the NIV really captures the essence of the original language. Seems to have a better rendering in this case. He says, what is your life? In other words, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. What is your life? Do you know? You know why you're here? Do you know why you have life? What's the meaning of your life? Where you came from? Why you're here? Where you're going? That's the basic stuff everybody wants to know. You're never going to know if God's not in it. What is your life? 
Well, in reality, our fleshly life here on this earth is a vapor, James says, a puff of smoke. The original language means a mist, steam from a tea kettle rising into the air for a split second and disappearing just as fast. I can hear echoes of Ecclesiastes, can't you? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. James is alerting us to the brevity of life here. He's reminding us that life is transient. It's fragile. It's temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. Here one minute, gone the next. Dust in the wind. You know, I'd venture a guess that the people who lost their lives in Las Vegas last week probably didn't wake up that morning telling themselves, this could be my last day on earth. Did you wake up this morning telling yourself that? See, we don't regularly do that. We don't expect tragedy to strike. But as Erwin Lutzer puts it, collapsing towers, accidents, and floods happen without warning. This is what contemporary society does not want to admit. You and I are temporary. Temporary. Life in this world is temporary. But we act like it's forever. And we make plans accordingly with no thought that God might interrupt them abruptly. And that's a huge blind spot, James says. Sure, our souls live forever. But James is talking about a person here who is concerned only about life in the flesh, yet never taking thought of that our flesh is only temporary. Psalm 39, in verses 6 and 11, say this, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Selah. Think about that. Psalm 90, verse 10. Moses writes, 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80. I quote these verses often at funerals. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble and soon they disappear and we fly away. It's too bad we don't read those verses to each other when we're living, that they only occur most often in funerals. And then there's Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. But before we go there, one author observes this. He says, yes, our souls live forever, but we're not just souls, are we? We're not just souls. We are enfleshed souls. And we know what happens to flesh, don't we? According to James, a prophet named Isaiah made an observation to the people of Israel thousands of years ago when they were suffering under the oppressor named Babylon. Isaiah says, quoting the Lord, a voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry out? All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. A voice, God, says, Isaiah, tell the people, all flesh is like grass. All human glory is like the flower of the field. It's temporary. It's disposable. And when Isaiah spoke those words, people living in the wealth and power and ambition of Babylon knew beyond a shadow of a doubt in their minds that the glory of Babylon would last forever. But guess what? It did not. Babylon is long gone, isn't it? Of course, we're different than those people were, right? Because we're smarter than Babylon. We have technology. All flesh is as the grass. You don't have to even believe in the Bible to know that that's true. Just look around you. The fastest athlete in track will eventually be defeated by arthritis or something. The most beautiful supermodel in the world will not be on the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition when she's 97 years old. 
Even wealthy, powerful CEOs get betrayed by their bodies and die. Gravity happens, doesn't it? This is not popular truth. This author says, I thought one time at the church where I work, I would help people remember that kind of thing, that we're transient, by developing a new liturgy where I would say, your flesh is like grass, and the people would respond, we are grass indeed. But it didn't go over very well. Now, there's a cave in New Zealand where they have literal glowworms. You've heard of glowworms, right? They have literal glowworms. The inside of the cave is lit up by thousands of these phosphorescent little creatures, and they spend most of their lives as larvae. And when they finally hatch and get their wings, they have no mouths, no way to feed. They only live for one single day, 24 hours. They have one day to fly, explore career opportunities, attract a mate, get married, have children, and then they die. One day. On the other extreme, guess how old the oldest living thing in the world is? Well, I would take issue with this person, but the scientists say that there's a clump of Mediterranean seagrass that scientists dated 100,000 years old. When Isaiah said those words, this living thing had already been alive for 90 millennia, if that is scientifically true. All flesh, flesh is as grass, Isaiah said. Lifespans can range from one day to thousands of years, yet all these living creatures will die, and it doesn't bother them at all, the seagrass or the glowworms. Why? Because they don't need a future. We're different on the other hand, don't we? aren't we? We have a radar for eternity, don't we? Why? Because God said that he has placed eternity in our hearts. Human beings have this instinct that life does not end with the grave. And we have a hunger, a hunger that this world cannot satisfy. Is that right? So what is your life, James says, God has placed eternity in the human heart. The Bible says the reason that he has done that is that we were made for an eternal existence with him. And the most important thing that we are doing in this life is preparing for the life that is to come. So James says, start making your plans and start living your life that way. Like there is an eternity at stake. So the third thing that James says here is adopt the practice of God-directed simplicity. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. Notice the two things that we are dependent on the Lord's will for in this text if the Lord wills, what? We will live. Stop right there. If the Lord wills, we will live. See, the only reason you and I get out of bed in the morning and are able to take our first breath in the morning is because God wills it. Do you get that? If the Lord wills, we shall live. The second thing here is if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. So you wake up in the morning, you take your breath. Okay, God wills that I'm living. Then if we're still breathing, by the time we get out of bed, we can go about our plans, right? Then we shall do this or that if the Lord's wills. He returns to the subject that he began, began with in verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and do all of this stuff. But it's only under the guise of if God wills it. In everything we must realize our dependence upon God. But it's not enough to simply realize the uncertainty and the brevity of life and how transitory life is that James is getting at because even unbelievers can accept that, right? They know that. It's not strictly a religious idea, this brevity of life thing. 
What James really wants people to get is that our lives are also in God's hand. They're brief, but while they're here, they're in God's hand. In other words, it's not just our frailty that's important, but God's sovereignty is important. That's what verse 15 is saying. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Notice in verse 15, this subtle shift in attitude and outlook that James is calling us to. Instead of the repeated, we will go, we will do, we will stay, we will profit, it's replaced with, if God wills, we will live. If God wills, we will do. You see, God's will is priority. Our plans are secondary. Now you say, we know that. Sure you do. (laughs) James wouldn't need to write this if we all lived this way. You see, now James is not giving us a verbal mantra to repeat every time we plan something like Lord willing, Lord willing this, Lord willing that. I know people that do that all the time, right? Sometimes it's a little annoying. Because they don't really mean it. It's just a Christianized statement. They're sticking on their words. However, it wouldn't hurt us to say it a little more frequently. But he's not giving us a verbal mantra. He's giving us a mental state that we're supposed to be living in, a framework, a frame of mind. If if we were more bent on looking for God in every situation that we encounter in our day, we would be less apt to view things that happen to us as intrusions and interruptions to our plans and instead see them as opportunities for engaging in God's plan. And we wouldn't be so anxious or stressed out all the time, would we? Really? James's thought process here reminds me of his brother Jesus's thought process in the Sermon on the Mountainside, right? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25 and following, you know the text. For this reason, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he goes on to say, look at the birds of the field, or the, the birds of the air, or the flowers of the field. They don't worry about these things, right? They, and then he says, and which of you by being worried can add a single hour to your life? This is a person that doesn't get up in the morning and say, if God wills. If you're worried about adding time to your life, you're not saying if God wills. But if God clothes so the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, here today, gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Don't worry then about these things, for that's what the Gentiles eagerly seek. That's what they worry about. And who are the Gentiles here? People without God. That's who he's talking to about. But here's the kicker. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, i.e., the Lord's will, and all these things will be added to you. In an incredibly helpful and eye-opening book, which I would highly recommend that all of you read, the title of it is The Will of God as a Way of Life. And the author is Gerald Sitzer. He brings the idea home with personal force. Let me quote to you a couple of excerpts from that book. He says, the ambiguity of seeking God's kingdom first gives us freedom. It gives us confidence and security to make decisions in our everyday lives. If we truly seek God above all, then we are always uh, doing the will of God. You get that? Because seeking God's kingdom first is God's will. In other words, we simply cannot lose, he says. We cannot make a decision that is outside the will of God because we're already inside that will if we're seeking his kingdom first. 
As it turns out, the weightiest choice we make is never between two future options, say, like taking a job in California or staying in Iowa, but between two ways of life, one for God and the other against God. The will of God concerns the present more than the future. Let me say that again. So let it sink into your brain. The will of God concerns the present more than it does the future. Because it deals with our motives as well as our actions. It focuses on the little tiny decisions that we make every single day, even more than the big decisions that we are about to make for the future. See, the only time he says we really have to know and do God's will is in the present moment. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself, right? Commandment. Fulfill those commandments in the immediate. These are the basic responsibilities that Jesus challenges us to pay attention to just as the basketball coach emphasizes the fundamentals of dribbling, passing, and shooting. We used to have to do that in soccer. Soccer. When I coached soccer. It's like you have to keep on going over and over and over and over the basic things. If you can't dribble, if you can't pass, if you can't shoot, guess what? The game's worthless. Jesus' teaching about the simple will of God is therefore always relevant in every situation imaginable. It is, mark this now, it is the daily choices we make to honor and serve God that determine whether we are doing the will of God. That we do not know what God wants us to do tomorrow does not excuse us from doing his will today. If you do his will today and tomorrow and every little decision you make, I'll guarantee you he will lead you into exactly the will he wants for you tomorrow. So James warns, acknowledge your tendency to be self-confident, self-confident ability, admit to the blind spot of our self-deceived futility and adopt the practice of God-directed simplicity by saying, if the Lord wills, and then fourthly, annihilate the sin of our self-inflated vanity. Verse 16, James 4, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. James says, stop boasting of all your human plans and accomplishments. Because if God's not a part of it, your boasting is evil. Now, evil is a very strong word. James uses a super strong word here. It's the word to describe Satan. Who the devil is, what his character is, it's evil. It's not a trivial matter, according to God, this boasting. It's self-asserted pretentiousness is what it is. The world has a name for it, swagger. And it's not becoming on a Christian, by the way. In fact, God calls it evil. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, with the rise of the contemporary church resembling more of a high-powered business than a generic community, unfortunately, many contemporary pastors and Christian leaders have fit into this category. Christian conferences marketing their particular formulas and philosophies of church growth and success have sometimes given us the impression that a successful ministry is more dependent on human competence and personal charisma than it is on God working through human weakness and Holy Spirit power. It's scary what we boast in. Through these verses, James lends a needed corrective in an age in church culture where Christians are viewed more as celebrities than saints. You know what James calls it? Arrogance. The Greeks called it hubris, an empty assurance which trusts in its own power and its own resources. First John chapter 2 and verse 16 calls it the boastful pride of life. And John identifies it as being not from the Father, but from the world. 
You want to know what tops the list, by the way? Just, I'm sure you know this, but it's sad if you do know this. You know what tops the lists as the most played song at a funeral is? My Way by Frank Sinatra. And that's just not in the United States, by the way. I discovered an overseas organization that has been compiling funeral statistics and music charts biannually since 2002. Last year, 2016, their study, based on over 30,000 funerals in the UK, revealed that their 2016 chart winner was Frank Sinatra's My Way. Just some of the lyrics. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has not? To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. You know, it's the same false philosophy put forth as the well-known and oft-quoted poem by William Ernest Henley, a self-avowed atheist called Invictus. Here's a little segment from that. You know it. You've heard it. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's scary. It gives me chills just saying it. You know what, James wants us to put that thought to rest. We are not the masters of our destiny. There are plenty of scriptures that tell us what we should be boasting in. Uh, Let me just show you one. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Psalm 34, 2 says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord, my Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There are tons of scriptures that tell us what we should be boasting in. And it's not that we did it our way. So James concludes with one more warning in verse 17, and it's this. He says, we need to apply the principle of our God-revealed responsibility. Verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Can you say Jonah? Right? He knew the right thing to do, didn't he? And he didn't do it. Big storm. Other people took the blow that, was, that were in his sphere. I don't want to give it all away. I'm going to preach on this series, maybe even next. But fact of the matter is God got him where God wanted him, didn't he, at some stage. But it would have been a lot easier had Jonah just said yes to begin with. Listen, friends, as we have seen, James is all about what constitutes real faith in this letter, Right? And here is one more element. Verse 17 again. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. It's not an act of faith if you don't do what you know you're supposed to do. Most of the time, we think that sin is basically doing what God has said not to do, right? That's the way we operate. That's wrong. I can't do that. But James raises up another aspect of sin, which is every bit as serious, not doing what God has said to do. We think about that. These are sin, there are sins of commission and there are also sins of omission. For example, we know that immorality is sin. Amen? I didn't hear everybody say amen. 
right, we know it. Serious sin. Matter of fact, God says, don't do it. And he's really saying, don't hurt yourself because it does hurt you. But David, as David Platt points out in his message on this particular text, habitually engaging in a lifestyle of immorality has dire consequences, serious ones. It will keep you from eternal life. Read Revelation 2, verses 14 and 15, talks about immoral people being outside the gates. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, other scriptures about that. But now, God has also said, now we know about immorality, right? God has also said, love your neighbor, care for the poor, feed the hungry, visit the prisoner, clothe the naked. You see a brother in need and you have the ability to meet it and you know you should meet it, but you do not meet it. Guess what that is? According to James, it's sin. And it's every bit as serious as the other. Proverbs 3, verses 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. You know, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus points out that there will be serious consequences for those who don't do what they knew they ought to do. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them as sheep and goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. You know the text, right? If you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with it. Skip down. So, so he's rewarding those who who fed the poor and clothed the naked and visited in prison. And then skip down to verse 42 and verse 41, and he condemns those on his left, says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. See, God doesn't prepare hell for us. He prepares it for the devil and his angels. And we decide, or God decides, but it's because of what we decide not to do, like accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we end up in the same place as the devil and his angels. Why? Because the devil thought he was God. And when we don't do and submit ourselves to God's will, we're playing God. Anyway, he says, accursed ones depart to the eternal fire. Why? Here's the reason. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. When they themselves, then they themselves also answer, Lord, when did we see you doing this, all this stuff, the sick, hungry, thirsty? He says, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. There it is. The sin of omission. Very serious that they did not do what they knew that they should do. They're equally grievous to God. So in the case at hand, James is basically saying, now that you know what is right to do, do it. And if you don't, it's sin. Basically, you're culpable. Oh, I pity all of us because we've sat through 21 segments of James now and we know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. I think James is pointing back to everything he's told us so far. Not just this immediate text, but all the way back. Right? Don't play favorites. But welcome those that are humble and lowly into your midst. If we don't do that, it's sin. Here's what he's saying. Knowledge of what is right 
and the ability to accomplish what is right creates a moral obligation for us to do what is right. And here's the rub as it pertains to this text. There's something far worse and more foolish than saying there is no God. It's knowing and believing in God and then living as if he's not there. So, going back to Gerald Sitzer in his book on the will of God as a way of life, he says the time to do the will of God is now, always now and never later. The sooner we get started, the better it will be for us, not for God. For God does not command us to do his will for his sake as if he were some puny dictator needing to have his ego flattered by groveling subjects. No, no, no. God commands us to seek him because our deepest longing is for him. We are incomplete without him. If we put off doing his will, we sacrifice our own happiness and our own fulfillment. We have been created for God and nothing less than complete surrender is going to satisfy us. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, says John Piper. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, God doesn't want something from us. He simply wants us. So, let me conclude. If you had to summarize how to live the rest of your life in six words, what would they be? Six words. What would they be for you? You know, the message of James today is very simple. It's six word simple. I'm going to give it to you. Live your life in God's will. In God's will, live your life. You've heard that thing, right? God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Well, let's just start saying something different because that's kind of getting old. Cliche. The truth is not old, but sometimes it sounds old. So... When I say, in God's will, you say, live your life. Then we say, live your life. Good. Write it down. Post it wherever you will see it every single day of your life. And then do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, we confess that we fall far, far short. We missed the mark. So we confess, Lord God, and ask your forgiveness. And we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would you'd dust us off, pick us up, set us on the path again, correct us, fill us, help us to keep our mind fixed on Jesus. And every plan that we possibly make, whether it's for 20 minutes from now or 20 weeks from now, may you be the central focus of it that we may be focused on doing your will today so that your will will be accomplished in us tomorrow. For Jesus' sake, I pray, amen.